0: This episode of BevNet's Taste Radio is powered by Cognizant. Find your focus. Cognizin, an industry-leading nootropic for work, exercise, gaming, or every day. Cognizant is the gold standard for focus, mental energy, and comprehensive brain health in your functional beverage. Give your customers the best ingredient for brain health with Cognizant. Learn more at Cognizin.com.
1: And thanks for tuning into Taste Radio, the number one podcast for the food and beverage industry. I'm editor and producer Ray Latif, and you're listening to episode 211, which features an interview with Pat Lafrida, the CEO of Pat Lafrida Meat Purveyors. Just a reminder if you like what you hear on Taste Radio, please share the podcast with friends and colleagues. And of course, would love it if you could review us on the Apple Podcasts app or your listening platform of choice. Pat Lafrida wasn't supposed to be in this position. His father, Patrick Sr., forbade him from joining the family's 100 year old meatpacking business and wanted for his son to be anything but a butcher. Lafrida eventually convinced his elder to join the company in 1994, and since taking the reins as CEO, he's built it into a sprawling $200 million empire that supplies meat to some of the country's finest restaurants and chains, including Shake Shack, whose burger patty was developed by Lafrida himself. The company has also developed fast growing retail and e commerce businesses each of which has helped it weather a massive downturn in the restaurant industry caused by the COVID-19 crisis. In the following interview, I spoke with Lafrida about how he turned a small business with five employees and 40 customers into the first name in meat, one that boasts over a 1,000 food service and retail customers. As part of our conversation, he also explained his definition for quality and how it fit into the company's evolution, why relationships are everything in business, his vision for the future of Pat Lafrida's, and his opinion about plant based meat products, one that's rather unexpected. Hey, folks, it's Ray with Taste Radio. I'm going to call right now with Pat Lafrida, the CEO of Pat Lafrida Meat Purveyors. Pat, how are you? Good. How you doing, Ray? Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being with me. How are things in your neck of the woods?
2: These are very odd times, Ray. Very odd times. We thought we've seen just about every type of obstacle and struggle, uh, and then Here we are in the middle of a pandemic, but we're still in a fight. We're still working every day and uh, supplying meat. People still need to eat.
1: And you've been supplying meat and helping people to eat meat for many, many years now. When did the company start? When did you launch?
2: Well, my grandfather started La Frida Meat Purveyors in 1922. So nearly 100 years of serving restaurants with meat. And he got into the business from a transition he did from retail to wholesale, meaning from selling in a retail butcher shop to supplying restaurants in New York City with meat. And he did that during an amazing union strike, which was basically a walkout of all the butchers in the 14th Street Meat Market. And back then, if you had a restaurant and you wanted meat, you had to get it from the 14th Street Meat Market. There was no other place that you could get it from. It was a very controlled business. And if there was a union union strike, that's it. They walked out and restaurants didn't have meat. So my fa- grandfather found that as an opportunity. He went to New Jersey to, to small farms. He was able to obtain beef and then bring it back to New York City, portion it, and sell it to restaurants.
1: When did you get involved with the company? I know your dad had some reservations about you joining. I mean... How did you convince him to be part of the family business and what were you doing before that?
2: It really starts with how hard this business is and how much harder it was. My dad and my grandfather had really experienced this industry probably in in its worst time ever. So having to bring in entire animals and having to sell, if you sold two top rounds of beef, you had to sell two flats. If you sold two flats, you going to sell the two strips. It's very different than it is now. But the environment that they were in and the dilapidated buildings of the Fourteenth Street Meat Market really made it a depressed career. And my father didn't have a choice. My father was forced to be into the meat business because Italian American families then really the sons followed what their fathers did. When it came to me, I'm um, Pat Lafritter the third I was the generation that was supposed to go off to college, learn how to do something bigger and better. And my father forbid me to be in the meat industry. And he forbid me to join the family business. Although I had worked every day off from from high school, every day off from junior high school. And before that, since I'm 10 years old, I worked with my dad on the weekends and on vacations. And it was the best job I ever had in my life. It made sense. Like, There was a demand for meat. We were the purveyors. We sourced it, and we supplied it. I mean, it was just, it made complete sense. I got to go in the trucks, make deliveries with the drivers, get to go into the kitchens and speak to chefs, and everyone just treated me so well on the chef side. It's the only thing that never made sense to me. So I went off to college. I got a finance degree. I joined a brokerage house on Wall Street called the Hibbard Brown. And I was there for not even a year. I got my Series 7, my 63 from the SEC. I was fully licensed, and I despised it. I found myself selling intangibles to strangers over the telephone. And within a year, I begged my dad to get off Wall Street and to join a family business and that I would be the one that would that would help grow the company. And it took some, some convincing, and my aunt... My father's sister, Lisa Lafrida, she was partners with my dad, and she was just retiring. And she was, my father's the like the lover out of the two, and she's the fighter. So she really wanted our company to to survive another generation. And in talking with her, and then she talking to my dad, we both convinced my dad that I could join the family business. And I just followed in my father's footsteps, exactly his work ethic except with a little bit more of an education in marketing. You know, My dad's born and raised in the streets of Brooklyn, as I was. But you know, high school is as high of an education as he went. And he really saved all of his money for his four kids to go to private schools and to college. And he spent all of his money on our education. So in a way, I felt that I could use that education in helping our company grow. And as he soon saw it, it it worked.
1: It sounds like your dad is quite the man. Uh, Is he still alive?
2: My dad is 73. He comes here every morning at 2.30 a.m. Because he's always started at 2.30 a.m. And as our business grew, I just pushed back the start time all the way to the point where we're 24 hours a day, six days a week. And I backed up my start time. But my dad... Out of respect, like, I never changed his towers. I mean, how could I? He's Ultimately, he's the boss, right? So um, he always comes at 2.30. But to see him at 2.30 gives me a sense of security. Like, I've have worked all night with my crew, sometimes from the afternoon before. But it's not until he steps into the building do I feel like a bit of calm comes over me. That's what he was missing when my grandfather passed away years before I joined the family business. I could see that he didn't feel that anymore. And now with me there, you know, sometimes he comes to work at 2.30 and as soon as the trucks leave, I'll begin talking to him and I can see him start to, to fall asleep again because he now feels at peace that, that security of, of me being here.
1: When a business is passed on from one generation to the next, that sense of continuity is so important. And one of the cornerstones of Pat Lafrida, the business, has been quality, uh, your commitment to quality. The word, though, has different tiers and different meanings to different people. What does quality mean to you guys?
2: Well, we are meat purveyors, and our job is to provide our customers with what they need and what they demand of us. So quality can mean so many different things now, as opposed to in my dad's era. So now quality can mean anything from meat that is grass-fed, where the perception is that it's better for the environment, to grain-fed, where it's better for the community, where you have growers of beef next to huge corn farmers. And that entire process there is, is very special in itself. And that's really what beef quality meant for many, many years. But now there's a sustainability complexity to this, whereas some can afford to buy meat that's either organic or all natural at the very least. And we see that's where the trend is going towards all natural. So that's a never ever program where no antibiotics and no growth hormones have been ever introduced to the animal at all. And it's been raised and grazed in the United States because contrary to many beliefs, A lot of beef is born south of the border and then brought north of the border to finish off and is deemed to be American beef or domestic beef. That's why ours, we specify that it's raised and grazed in the United States from birth to harvest. We see that as a form of quality. And then there's the the grading. Grading only 4% at the most of American beef that's produced is of prime grade. So, there's a constant battle as to what meat producers like myself are going to get part of that four percent. And you know, it takes many years of being solid and sustainable as a company, which translates into you pay your bills in seven days to the growers on a constant basis in order to earn that respect of getting a huge amount of that four percent of the prime. So, prime beef has to do with the intramuscular fat that's inside the protein itself. The more intramuscular fat, those are the white specks that we see at the cross section of beef, the higher the grade is. So one step below prime would be the top one third of choice. And we have a huge demand for that. It's a completely different price bracket and there's a lot more access to that product. And when as I said, different restaurants will demand different tiers of pricing, different grades of quality. So our job is to make sure no matter what category we're selling, we are sourcing the best beef in that category.
1: Hey folks, stay tuned till the end of this episode for a bonus interview with industry veteran David Sandler, who shares an insider's perspective on one of the most in-demand functional ingredients. Of 2024: What I'm hearing is that a lot of it depends on your customer partners, your restaurant partners as to what their customers are looking for on the plate, despite it being the same grade of meat, right? I mean, the way you prepare and process protein is just is pretty unique. Could you tell us a little about what you do that is so special?
2: One of the very many things that we do differently at Free Meats is we don't freeze anything. So our beef comes in fresh. And one of the reasons that we work 24 hours a day is because restaurants normally order when their service is done. So that could be 10, 11, almost midnight at some times. They place their orders in and they want their meat delivery the very next morning. So we're talking about maybe seven hours later, they want the delivery in front of the door. In order to make that happen, we cut everything to order, everything fresh. We have to be here all night in order for it to happen. So we're really fighting the clock the other way. We're, we're, whereas most of are hoping that the, the, the clock turns quickly so they're done with work. We're all hoping that the clock goes the other way so we can get the orders out on time. Because if you don't have... That delivery at 7, 8, 9 a.m. in the morning at that restaurant, the phone calls started coming in. It's clear
1: you've helped a lot of chefs and a lot of restaurants with very high quality, very high end meat. One of your largest partners is Shake Shack. I'm, I'm kind of blown away that uh, everything that you provide to your restaurant partners and your retail partners is all fresh, not frozen, because Shake Shack is one of the fastest growing restaurant chains in America, I think with a valuation of over a billion dollars at this point, you helped create the blend that they use, the hamburger meat blend that they use in their restaurants. I did create it. Yes. You created it. You didn't help create it. (laughs) You You were the creator of the Shake Shack
2: Burger. Yes. Well, it took a few blends to, to work right on the flat top grill that they had in the park at that time. But it's truly an amazing story to have seen what it was i mean it was a little hot dog stand in the park and for it to turn into a publicly traded burger restaurant that's internationally accepted known and demanded it's amazing and i remember trying to explain it to my dad he didn't really understand what i was telling him when i said there were long lines of people that were waiting for the burger and i actually took him to the park and I said, Dad, you see this line? He goes, no, this can't be for Shake Shack. I'm like, Dad, this is for Shake Shack. This line here of 250 people are all people waiting to get a Shake Shack burger. I think that was one of the proudest moments that, that I've shared with my dad. You know, for him to see that really came full circle because we've always been known for our burger meat. And it was usually the Louviers and the Daniels of the world would stop by our place for let's say like grilling season, 4th of July, Memorial Day, Labor Day weekend. But they weren't buying meat from us for their restaurant the rest of the year. So I knew that was one of the things that I really needed to promote was how great our burger meat was. Our meat is chopped. It's not ground. And Can we pause there? And I, I want to ask you, why is your
1: meat chopped instead of ground?
2: Well, because we use whole muscle. So we only use whole cuts of beef to make our chopped beef. And again, it's one of the Reasons that it keeps our burger much different in quality and in flavor than any other producer of burgers. Um, most burger producers use imported trimmings, mechanically deboned beef, and then they'll add some small fraction of beef in on top of that. We only use whole muscles, so whole cuts of beef: chucks, beef clods, briskets, boneless short ribs. And in that manner, we're able to control the flavor always. When you bring in trimmings from other countries, you really don't know what's in that. All I'll tell you is the fat to lean ratio. That's not as important as knowing what cuts of beef go into our La Frida original blend. And to make Shake Shack's blend, I had to take our original blend and tweak it somewhat, mostly with the brisket, uh, adding brisket to it, But for it to to cook right on that flat top, it took a little ingenuity and reverse reverse thinking on what's best for that cooking device. So we all learned a lot of lessons from that. And they've since changed that from that flat top to a, a different one. But that was the first time that we know of where a butcher actually tweaked their blend according to what the chef's kitchen equipment was and the size of the burger had to be a certain width to match the size of the of the bun. The kind of thinking never happened before so that the burger was a half inch wider than the bun so that when it cooks, it matches the bun. And, you know, those kind of attention to detail points really made Shake Shack and their consistency and training really made Shake Shack stand out from everyone else.
1: I don't remember seeing this when I've been to Shake Shack. Does Shake Shack advertise that they're using Pat Lafrida beef on their menus?
2: Does um, the Shake Shack advertise using Lafrida beef? They do locally, I believe, on their website, and they do mention us a lot, and they do credit us with their blend in their Shake Shack book. But to be a national and international brand, I don't think there are many people in Saudi Arabia they can assimilate our name with a burger. So it doesn't really work in a universal way. But when they went public, they kind of had to be a little independent on that side, but that's fine by us. We were never we were never the type that pushed for our name to be on the menu or to take credit for anything. We are the meat supplier. We're the purveyor. So our job is to supply them with beef and to make sure that, that their blend is consistent and their blend is... Supplied to them every day, fresh.
1: I have seen your name on other menus though. You know, if I'm going out to a local restaurant, I'll see on a menu, you know, we use patla to meat for our burgers or for our steaks. And it's interesting because going back to this point about quality, your name is in many ways synonymous with high quality meat. And and I know you said you've never asked or you don't ask restaurants to add the brand to their menus, but it certainly helped, right? I mean, it certainly helped get your, get the name out there to consumers who weren't necessarily familiar with your company prior to it appearing on restaurant menus.
2: Yes. So our name being on on restaurant menus really helped our exposure to the general public. And I'll tell you, with Boston, Boston's been a great market for us. And when we first went to Boston, we were asked by the Red Sox to actually do our cheesesteak there and actually cook it there. And I warned my crew. I'm like, look, they're going to associate us with the Yankees. I don't know. What's, you know, we might get roughed up down, down here, up here. I, I don't know what's <laughs> going to happen. And I got to say, I think in the first half hour, someone walked by and said, hey, Palo has got a steak sandwich here. Palo Fritos. And we just were so honored. And um, our business in Boston's grown ever since. So Italy opened there. And the newest, I think the biggest project I've seen in Boston in a long time is the Encore. Encore opened in Boston. And it is huge. And if there's a place that needed hotel rooms, it's Boston. <laughs> <laughs> just staying there for, for the games while, while we were there for for a few months. I mean, it was expensive and it was even hard to find hotel rooms in Boston. So, yeah, the Encore has been huge for us there. And so now we have three trucks that go to Boston every day.
1: Wait, you guys are Yankees fans? I'm just, I'm not, I'm done with Pat LaFrieda's beef. I'm never... <laughs> 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 no, I'm just... Obviously, I'm kidding. Um,
2: we do have more Met, Mets fans here than Yankees fans, but being a New Yorker, both teams have done well and done poorly. And I think it's great to have like an alternate team so the Yankees weren't doing well. All right, we're Mets fans now and vice versa. Now, not very many people are like that, but we always like both teams, to be honest with you. And we work with both teams. We We supply a lot of meat to the Mets, and we work with the Yankees as well.
1: You know, you mentioned Italy uh, in Boston, and I actually bought some uh, burgers from Italy the other day, and specifically bought them because they were Pat Lafrida brand, and they were fantastic. Having your name on restaurant menus certainly seems to have helped your retail division as well. Is that a growing part of your business? I assume it is now. You know, in our in our current circumstances, where obviously nearly every restaurant in America is closed, um, obviously they're still doing takeout, but people buying meat at grocery stores is you know through the roof
2: yes the demand for our product in in retail has really risen to the point where we've turned down the last few uh, grocery store chains that that have asked for our product because we've always had the mentality of we're going to serve our customers that are with us 52 weeks a year and just because product is short doesn't mean we're going to sell it to someone else for more money We, we never do that uh it's kind of the legacy of why we don't serve Peter Lugers as much beef as we could. Earlier, I spoke about the 4% of beef in America is prime. Well, we're going to make sure our customers that buy from us every week get the first dibs on that product. But as far as retail goes, retail has been growing tremendously for us. And yes, restaurants are closed now, but they will reopen and things will come back to normal. I'm very optimistic about that. It's going to take a little bit longer than I at hope but it will come back. But if we hadn't had such a great retail demand, we would be very lost right now because with all restaurants being closed and open for maybe curbside delivery or, or delivery, it, it's about ten percent of the business that we that we did with restaurants. And our retail has risen about five hundred percent. Actually The packaging for retail is very time-consuming because each item has to be portioned, exact weights, and labeled as such. So it takes a lot more time to produce all of the retail demand that we have. So our butchers are working still the same amount of hours as they were before this crisis. If you think about it, our restaurants helped us get a retail name. And during this time, the retail business, business has helped us survive through this crisis only to be here for when our restaurants reopen. And I, I mean, it's part of being a, a meat purveyor who's open 24 hours a day. You know, I speak to chefs all night long and whether I'm consulting on their menu or I am counseling them to get off their couch and get back into the restaurant. And even though they won't be doing a lot of business, it feels a heck of a lot better to be doing something. Yeah, I'm always going to see the glass half full. I'm always going to be optimistic because what other choice do we have? We often say, oh, we've never lived through anything like this before. No, we have. We've lived through stuff like this before. It looked differently. It didn't last as long. But we have lived through things like this before. I was at the base of the Twin Towers when they fell. We were here during Hurricane Sandy, which was nothing but some rain and no electric for a week, snowstorms in the city that gave us blackouts for weeks on end, uh, especially down in the 14th Street Meat Market. We've seen disaster before, and we've always come back, and we'll come back from this. And I think that all of the the different obstacles that we faced prior to this has, has really geared us up to being able to handle this it's going to take everything that we have to get our restaurant industry back to where it was. So, uh, not just me counseling them at night, <laughs> but it's going to take support and, uh, it's going to take some time, but it's going to happen.
0: If you work in the food and beverage industry and you're serious about growing your team, make sure to check out the BevNet and Nosh job boards to get the most bang for your buck, purchase a package and receive a discount. Head to bevnet.com or nosh.com and click on job board at the top.
1: You know, I love your perspective of optimism and positivity. It It is what we need. Um, you know, you can get really down at any given point of the day. And it's relationships that really help, you know, folks that you can lean on, friends, colleagues, mentors, etc. It sounds like you've had relationships with chefs and restaurant owners for years, if not decades. And it's been a boon to your business and theirs. You know, we we chatted before our interview and, and you talked about how these types of relationships take a lifetime and it's not something you can fake or buy. What's been the most important aspects of building relationships, building long-lasting relationships?
2: Number one is accessibility. Customers want to be able to pick up a phone and call someone who could make the call and change their day. So if they're short an item or if they forgot to order an item, at that point it doesn't really matter. The fact that they're able to pick up a phone and get someone that can make a difference in their day and save them from a small catastrophe of not having product and having an 86 an item for the night is really key. And and all of that has to do with being reliable and sustainable ourselves. So the fact that we're always open. We're always accessible. We always have product on hand to supply restaurants, our restaurants. When I said you can't fake it, you can't fake a relationship because relationships are only built between two parties that respect each other. And to gain the respect of a chef, you have to be very reliable for a decent amount of time, like decades sometimes. To prove to someone that you're always going to be there for them, and like I had said earlier, our best friends are our customers. I mean, we spend so much time working with our customers; they have become our best friends. On our free time, that's who we spend our time with. That's who we go away with sometimes when we when we have the chance. You know, that's who we have a lot of fun with. So, yeah, it's it's, it's a lifetime of dedication in that relationship to build it. But if you're reliable, if you're accessible and if you can make the changes that will help that customer, that customer you won't call them a customer for very long. They'll soon become your friend. And and that relationship is priceless. Now that has to be backed up with quality of product. It has to be backed up with pricing that is equal or reasonable to what is available in the market. You know, there's there's a lot of aspects that, that come into play. You can be friends with someone all you want, but business is business. So A relationship is one aspect but it has to be backed up with the right product the right expertise at the right pricing and the right service
1: you know some people think that the long game for the meat industry includes plant-based and lab-grown meat and you know in our industry in our in our focus at bevnet nosh we look at a lot of trends that are related to better for you products natural organic products. And a lot of people associate plant-based meat and lab-grown meat as, quote-unquote, better for you. Uh, I'm curious as to your perspective on those types of products and their impact on the future of the meat industry.
2: Well, I don't think they have any impact on the future of the meat industry. I think that the meat industry will always be here. It'll always be efficient. It'll always be solid. And there'll always be demand for real meat. But I have supported the plant-based protein idea from its inception. So as soon as Impossible Burger was available, I met with them and we were their first distributor on the East Coast. So the reason I was so enthused at it is there's already a protein shortage in our country and in the world. So any other alternative forms of protein to me it's just a plus it keeps beef prices at bay and it supplies protein where we wouldn't be able to get it otherwise when i ask consumers what they like about first of all very many people are surprised that i would support such a a project right i mean i'm the meat guy and i'm i'm selling plant based protein but i see not i see Nothing wrong with that. It's another form of protein. I think it's a great idea. But when I ask consumers what it is about it that they like, they can't really answer me other than it's better for the environment, which they don't really know that it's not completely better for the environment. I think it will get there. I think, like anything else, it will only improve in flavor, in consistency, in texture, which all three of those I don't like. I'm not a big fan of eating any plant-based protein if it's the center of the plate, like a burger. I like it as something else in the dish. Like David Chang at Mama Fugo made me all of his dishes using plant-based protein, and they were delicious dishes, and I didn't know that I wasn't eating real beef. It, it really tasted like any other dish that he had because of the flavors. But when you put that in a burger and – no matter what you put on that burger, you're going to get to the, to the center, right? It doesn't have the texture, nor will it, nor should it. I, I never thought that if you wanted an alternative source of protein, why would you want it to make it look like it bled? Why would you want to fake yourself into eating beef when you really don't want to eat beef? So that that's the way I feel about it. But I'm all for it. I think that the product will only get better. And you know I've been distributing it for three and a half years. So last year when Beyond Meat became public, I wondered where everyone was for the three years before that I was distributing it. It seemed like there was only a real big buzz and demand for it when the advertising and the word of mouth and the social media really like took it to a level that it hadn't been in a couple of years. You know, for something that's been available to go from steady sales to a huge jump because of the publicity. To me, that means that it's going to plateau and come down a bit. And you know, I don't know what the future is for plant-based protein, but I can tell you the future for meat is a good one.
1: The future of the meat industry looks bright. How do you feel about the future of Pat LaFrieda's? I mean, what challenges do you see going forward? What are your most compelling hurdles? What are the most, what were the biggest hurdles for the company to grow from your generation to the next one?
2: Well, I think the biggest hurdle for right now, for the next good 10 years, for the next decade, is gonna be to rebuild the restaurant industry that was torn apart in a matter of days. The majority of our food source are restaurants, and we need to support those restaurants. And those restaurants are predominantly small businesses, Small businesses are the engine to our economy. And we often hear about small businesses, we need to help them. But this is the perfect example of how this will hit home. Because we now have seen what life is without restaurants. I would say that everyone wants them back. So in order to get them back, we really need to support them however we can. And restaurants need to innovate. This is something to learn from. This is the time when when you do need to pivot, change your your business plan, and change how you conduct business. There will be a lot of opportunities right now for those that can figure out those solutions. And we need to be there to support that.
1: You know, at the top of our conversation, you mentioned that your father and your grandfather wanted to keep you away from the business. They had seen the hard times in the meat industry. We're going through a hard time right now. Has that changed your perspective as to your children getting involved in the family business?
2: My perspective for my children, so I have a son who's Patrick the fourth and a daughter, Juliana, and I would say that she's more like my aunt. She's the fighter and he's the lover, and she's nine and he's 15. But my perspective for my children is that I send them to Good schools, and I want them to be something bigger and better. Yet my father is telling me, "No, my kids have to take over and be the next generation, and this company needs to survive the next generation." I'm like, "Dad, what happened to me? You didn't want me here." He's like, "Ah, don't don't pay attention to that." (laughs) (laughs) So I guess that's his way of saying he's very happy with our growth, and he would really like to see our company last another generation. I mean it's his legacy. And I think when he he sees how well our company's doing, he's constantly mentioning his father and how proud his father would be. And I'm the oldest of four. I always felt like it was my, my job to make sure my, it, it was my responsibility to make sure that our company lasted another generation because it's, it's really what our family is.
1: I agree. I I mean, I would absolutely love to see the Pat LaFrieda brand and company be independently owned for the rest of my life. And uh, I think it really means something when it is truly family owned. Pat, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be with me. These are definitely trying times, and uh, you know, I commend you and your team and your family for taking this leadership role in providing the country with the highest quality food, giving your employees and your colleagues the kind of motivation and optimism that we need at this time. So thank you again.
2: All right. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening. You really are someone that cares. And and that's the only way that we're going to make it out of here is to get the word out. Indeed. Thanks again. Thank you, pal.
1: That brings us to the end of episode 211. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks to our guest, Pat Lafrida. You can catch both Taste Radio and Taste Radio Insider on tasteradio.com, the Apple Podcasts app, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. As always, for questions, comments, ideas for future podcasts, please send us an email to ask at tasteradio.com. On behalf of the entire Taste Radio team, thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Hey, folks, it's Ray with Taste Radio. Right now, I'm honored to be sitting down with David Sandler, an industry consultant working with Kiwa Hako. David, great to see you.
0: Hey, great to see you guys.
1: David, you've been in this business, the beverage business, for over 20 years. You've been working on functional beverages for quite some time as well. And I'd love to hear from you about that term, because it's an often used term in industry. But what is a functional beverage?
0: As far as you know, its category, a lot of things fit in it, and mostly it has to do with sort of the overall way it can benefit the human body to some effect that you wouldn't normally derive regularly without some nutritional support, but more so it seems to be used in the category of like mood, relaxation, or some other type of performance benefit that you might get, say- to improve athletic ability or fitness or health aspects. So we're seeing a lot now of products coming out that fit that mold where you're talking about more mood, relaxation, even hydration, and then having energy for performance or for health.
1: There are a lot of benefits that can be described as functional. But within this umbrella of functional beverages, could you talk about the growth of the category and where it's going in 2024 and beyond?
0: Well, it seems like the growth is uh, never ending and it seems like single serve RTDs are still on the rise. Energy drinks are still plowing through. They seem to be continually increasing. Now, what we're seeing, though, is an attempt to try to add some other additional benefits to energy drinks including hydration and, you know, focus, mood, and just better overall feeling. And we're starting to see other health benefits being added to some of these drinks as well.
1: Let's talk about one functional ingredient in particular, that's cognizant, which is a, an ingredient that I have a lot of love and respect for. But talk about cognizant and what makes it a leading nootropic.
0: Well, one, you come with uh, years and years of experience from the makers, uh, Hila Hako. They just have such great processes and really stellar research and very solid scrutiny behind their ingredients that they do work with and promote. And so from there, you know, you're going to get something that's, that's really, you know, first class. We talk a lot about having better focus in today's workplace or today's environment where there's so many factors that are going on, this ingredient seems to really shine. Its data shows unparalleled performance. And uh, for myself as a user and a formulator, it's finding its place in many of the drinks that I am working on where I'm trying to enhance focus, enhance mood, and improve cognition over uh, longer term use.
1: Is this an ingredient that's becoming more in demand among today's consumers, among modern consumers, and why?
0: Well, I think, one, we're we're starting to see it more in products that are out there. So consumers are starting to understand a little bit more about it. But also, what we're finding is, is that while lots of groups are out there promoting these ingredients that enhance mood or focus or concentration or cognition and so forth, Many of them are wrapped around dosages that are not able to be achieved. For you know, many of the functional mushrooms, for example, require a much larger dose than people are using in the dosing. So they're not seeing the benefit that they would derive. Whereas when you get a cognizant-based product, one, there's the requirement to have a dose that matches their research, unless you're actually getting that feeling. You're getting that function coming out of it. And that's why I think we're starting to see people switching to it and adding it to their products.
1: I'm curious, are there any other natural ingredients that complement Cognizant in a beverage formulation?
0: It can go in a number of different ways. You can put it into your standard pre-workouts to improve the overall function of a pre-workout where you've got your energy, maybe you've got your blood flow, you've got your pump that you're looking for and then you complement it with a you know the focus factor, that concentration that helps you zero in and have a much better workout. But we're also seeing where I would complement it with things like some of those other functional so-called ingredients like mushrooms and a few other ingredients out there where it works so well. The wonderful thing about Cognizant is it works in every format, right? From capsules to powders to liquids. Its taste is just so easy to work with. It's incredibly soluble. It's just a very, very easy ingredient to work with.
1: Easy to work with and easy to learn more about by going to cognizant.com. C-O-G-N-I-Z-I-N.com. David, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. Thanks for all the information and uh, look forward to catching up again soon.
0: It's an absolute pleasure. And again, thank you for having me.